Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Joining me on this episode is Kathy Waugh, award-winning writer of an array of children's television programs and films. Kathy's written for such PBS children's television mainstays as Arthur and Curious George. She was head writer for Peep in the Big Wide World, and she was co-creator, creative director, and executive story editor of the PBS kids show Molly of Denali. Kathy also wrote the screenplay for the 2011 feature film Judy Moody and the Not Bummer Summer. Kathy's latest creative achievement is a new three-episode Netflix series called Ivy and Bean, based on the books by Annie Burroughs and chronicling the adventures of two fiercely imaginative and inquisitive seven-year-olds. Here's the trailer. Take your seats, everyone. Ivy, Bean, I think you two would make a great team. Let's see about that. What the heck is that? I felt surrounded by a cold wind. I heard a voice. Hello. My lovelies. It's a ghost. A ghost? That bathroom is haunted. Can we go see? This school was built on top of an old graveyard. They cannot guarantee your safety. We need a ghost expelling spell. I wouldn't mind expelling a few ghosts. Need to be precise, or else it could be an even bigger disaster. Circle of friends, pair of enemies. You two! They're entirely too chatty. I'm always in trouble. You were supposed to rub off on me, but I'm rubbing off on you. (laughs) Hey! What are you all up to? In my experience, if everything is quiet, you need to worry. Ghosts be gone! Having an imagination is good. (laughs) But we need to use our imaginations responsibly and respectfully. We are ready to begin. See you tomorrow. And the day after that. And the day after that. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a review and share. And now on to my conversation with Kathy Waugh. Hello, Kathy Waugh, and welcome to Making Media Now. Hey, Mike Acevedo. I'm going to pretend I don't know you. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Kathy and I go back a long way uh, from our days at WGBH, or I should say my days at WGBH. Kathy still is very much involved with the brilliant folks at GBH. And while we never actually worked directly together uh yes, we were we, we did. did we work to, on what oh between the lions the lions very briefly yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Right. Between the Lions was about 25 years ago. And it was correct me if I'm wrong here. It was it was a bunch of the uh, the folks who got Sesame Street off the ground and these brilliant, insane puppeteers uh, from England, I think. Um, And the lions in question were the two lions that were like the citadels at the uh, New York Public Library, supposedly. And it was a show all about reading. But my my um, (laughs) the the one one memory that holds that stays with me from that experience was I remember being in this meeting with a bunch of advisors. There had to be 30 people. And, you know, being among the very unimportant people, I was on the periphery of I wasn't even at the table. I was against the wall close to the table. But John Scully, uh, who, you know, formerly of Apple and Pepsi, he was like the unrecognized genius in the room. Right. He didn't say a word for about a three hour meeting. I remember him just sitting there every now and again. He would nod. And when he nodded, other people would kind of look his way and they would nod. And I thought, okay, there's the genius in the room right there. That was that that was that was an interesting observation for me. That is so insightful. And that's one of those things. I mean, I I don't remember that because I think I was too busy wondering, like, uh, was lunch arriving on time? (laughs) That sort of stuff. But um, I know. And that's because I I was responsible, not because I was hungry, but because I had to get the lunch there for everyone else. Um, I you know, that's something I've observed a lot is the quieter people in the room who often And I'm not one of them. And I keep trying to learn this lesson about sitting back and not jumping immediately into the fray because there's just wisdom in listening, sussing out the room and waiting to make your your moment. I have I work with someone now who is very much like that. And I it, it takes a while to sink in. And then you realize she's she's never pushing forward. She's always stepping back. But somehow she maintains her role in the room as the power person. And it's very interesting to see. Well, Between the Lions was just one of the um, the PBS programs that that you worked on among a it, it's like a greatest hits of children's programming that you that you worked on with PBS. I mean, some of the iconic programs like Curious George and Arthur. And you were the creator or a co-creator of Molly of Denali, um, yeah. one of the more recent offerings, um, I believe. But your, your latest uh, creative achievement uh, launched on Netflix earlier this month, and it's Ivy and Bean, The Ghost That Had to Go. And if I understand correctly, it's the first of what's eventually going to be three um, movies based on the Ivy and Bean uh, book series. So uh, what did I get right? What did I get wrong about that? Almost all right. First of all, gosh, I'm so old because, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I do go back all the way to the beginning of Arthur. Um, but Ivy and Bean, the three films are already out. And they're so, already all three. Yes, out. Already, okay. All three out. The, um, the ghost that had to go is number two. The first one is just Ivy and Bean. It's the intro book in the series. Then the ghost that had to go and then doomed to dance. And did I, Netflix drop them all on the same day? I believe so. We're very close to the same day, but I, okay. they're all three out now. Yeah. And you were screenwriter on all three. I was. And then there was also um, after I had done the polish and the director came in, Netflix 
has a policy of hiring um, another, a polish, a different polish writer, mm -hmm. which I can totally get behind because it's just different energy and, and new ideas. Um, his name is Jeff Stockwell. He wrote Bridge to Terabithia. So we share credit on one of the three films. Okay. And I have sole credit on the other two. So. And in this instance, is Netflix also considered the, um, uh, like the producing entity? Was, is this a Netflix production or is it, was there another producing arm that Netflix is more of like the streaming distributor? Well, Netflix was very involved and I'm not sure of the technicalities of the contract, but you're good question because no, the whole project started with a small company in England called Kindle Entertainment. And I worked for them on two other shows. I was the head writer for a puppet show they did called Big and Small, mm -hmm. my favorite project of all. And then we did a live action series called Jamila and Aladdin. It was filmed in South Africa and was literally about Aladdin and a modern London girl who goes back in time. Um, and then, so, so Kindle got the rights to the Ivy and Bean books, which were written by Annie Barrows. Um, there might be 12 or 13 in this series now. I'm not entirely sure. And they, we went out to LA one weekend to pitch them to Netflix, to Amazon, to Apple, maybe to some others. And a couple of people, we were thinking of it as an animated series because that's what yep. we do. And Netflix was interested in making it um, family films. They had a division since shut down, but that was focused on family films. And so they wanted to do three one hour live action films. And that was just um, like, so we had to get our heads around that. So different um, from what animation can do, you immediately have to deal with issues of child actors and how much can you get from them and what can you do vis-a-vis -vis fantasy sequences and that sort of thing. But um, in the end, I'm really glad it was yeah. live action. Yep. Um, and, and, and just for our listeners who aren't familiar with the Ivy uh, and Bean series, Ivy and Bean are two friends. They're two friends. Um, I could not, if you have young kids who are uh, in, looking for reading material in the eight, nine year old age, I couldn't recommend this series more. They are two girls who are very different. And at first mm -hmm. they, they don't like one another, but they soon become best friends. And what it really celebrates the whole series is, is friendship. And it's so at a remove from how girls are typically portrayed in media as mm -hmm. new girls are kind of fashion obsessed or whatever. They're just, they're little kids, seven, I guess that's not quite little, but you know, seven. Um, and they live very normal, simple lives. And, and yet they get up to all kinds of mischief. And what I love about the books is that there's no moral, like mm -hmm. <laughs> there's no tis tisking at the end about don't flush things down the toilet. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't uh, they're very transgressive. These little girls and they, um, they, just go on their merry way. And I, I, anyway, I love the books. How closely do the Netflix movies hew to the, um, the books? Another great question. Um, they, these three basically follow the plot of the whole, um, of, of the books. Although we had to, uh, particularly for doomed to dance, which is all about them trying various ways to get out of a ballet recital because they're terrible at it. It was their idea to take ballet lessons. They <laughs> had promised to stick it out. And then they, so they try to figure out how they can break their arms. That doesn't work. They run away 
to the aquarium. <laughs> you know, they, they do all these things. And at the end, they realize they kind of have to they're going to have to do it and just make the best of it. And that's where the book ends. Of course, we had to, we couldn't end it there. We had to actually show them on stage and come up with a whole ending. So of course they're, the books are very, they are simple in the extreme and that's their beauty. Um, the Netflix of course had to make it bigger and, and wanted to make it bigger and more impactful and sort of push all the edges. And, and then the director, Lisa down Australian, she, she's just, She's just a genius. She really is. She kind of, she went in and said, I want to really be creatively bonkers is her mm -hmm. phrase. And I loved that phrase. I think she really delivered on it. So there's a bonkers quality to the books. It's lovely. Um, and Alyssa just pushed it to the max, you know? Um, and, and so they're very visual. They're very uh, colorful. They're, they're very imaginative in ways that aren't in the books. I don't know if I answered your question. So it's, and where did, where did production take place? Uh, Vancouver, outside okay. of Vancouver last summer. And I think of all things, it was like 110 degrees. Yeah. For a good part of the shoot, which was horrible. Not what you think when you hear Vancouver, <laughs> Canada. Yeah. Thinking cool breezes and yeah. So that was not your, your first experience with live action. Uh, you, you were the uh, screenwriter for a film called Judy Moody and the Not Bummer Summer a few years back. And you touched upon a little while back around, you know, writing, knowing that the end result is going to be animated versus live action. So as a writer, um, yeah, you, you do have... Um, I would imagine in an animated world, you can say, oh, well, here's in this instance, you know, the all right, I'm going to really date myself right now. But, you know, the uh, the Warner Brothers cartoons where Bugs Bunny um, would run off the side of the, uh, the cliff, but he would never fall. You could run back. Right, right. <laughs> or, or Roadrunner doing that, I guess. Right. But, um, you know, what type of discipline do you have to apply to yourself as a storyteller uh, when you're in live action versus animation? That's such a great question. And exactly that. It's like you can't have them running off of cliffs. I had written. Um, we very much wanted to have fantasy sequences because even though I've even been in the books, don't spend a whole lot of time fantasizing there. That's where their minds go. And so we wanted to visualize that. Um, so I remember just as an example in, um, the ghosts that had to go, cause they get in trouble. They basically flood the bathroom because they're trying to get expel ghosts. And while they're waiting for their parents to decide on their punishment, they're fantasizing how bad it's going to be. And so before I knew when you first start writing, you're often told, don't worry, just write what comes to you. Don't worry about the budget. Don't worry about any of that. But of course you are, because I've been around long enough to know, is anyone sure. going to have the money for this? But they told me to go for it. So I did. And so I imagined them getting thrown by the principal into some uh, jail called Eel Jail. And it was high on a cliff top overlooking and they didn't know where it's, you know, and there were prisoner children chained to the walls, you know, they were, and they, they, they discover it's called the eel prison because they look out down this parapet hundreds of feet and these eels are rising up out of the moat and that, you know, they're never going to get out. 
And that got changed to just quick shots of them in a police lineup photo, <laughs> you know? which, is, which is, you know, that's the budget reality. That's it's the really, budget reality. Yeah, exactly. Very funny. It's very funny. The shots of them in the police lineup, but um, it's quick. It's, it's much more. Limitless imagination, <laughs> limited budget. That's, that, that's how they resolve that. that, um, that yeah. They did it very creatively. So give me a uh, give me a sense of how you got into writing for children's television and children's film. I totally backed into it. I'd done a lot of photography at, in college and um, and I always loved documentary films. And so in my early 20s, I thought, oh, I know what I'll be. I'll be a documentary filmmaker. So I went to uh, Temple University. They had a, a MFA in documentary filmmaking, one of the only in the country, because most film programs were focused on feature films. And so this was documentaries. And over two years, I discovered this is before, you know, GoPros and all of this. This mm-hmm. is like I'm walking around with a massive three quarter inch video camera on my shoulder and a Nagra tape recorder. And I'm having to learn all this technical stuff about miking a room and lighting a room. And I'm because this, you know documentary filmmakers tend to work, uh, you know, alone or with one other, they've got to know all this stuff. And I, at some point after, after completely failing at something I was trying to film and I I, I forgot to white balance and I I thought, I, I, I don't actually want to do this. I want to have the ideas and have something else make them. So um, I had also been taking a, 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 a film writing course at the school. And then I did, uh, so I kind of knew I liked it. My dad was a writer. I always loved to write, but I think I didn't envision myself as making a living at that. Um, mm. And then, um, and then I got a job in development at WGBH and okay, this was a complete, it sounds like I made it up, but I didn't. Um, so I was writing proposals and my boss saw that I was a good writer and um, I'll own that. I'll say it. I'm a good writer. Um, and she, <laughs> and she, um, you know, she I said, concur. Oh, well, <laughs> we'll look for something for you to do, you know, at some point, but I was stuck in proposal writing. Um, hell. And, and then there was a, a live action non-broadcast series. It was um, happening. Um, and I'm now blanking on the name of it, but it was being shot in Chelsea, I think. And they couldn't, um, it was going to, it was intended for school use and it was intended to promote the use of fax machines. That's, <laughs> yeah. Getting kids to write by faxing to one another. So it was a, I know, faxing among schools. That was the idea. Disruptors. <laughs> I think like within a year of it coming out, I was. I think the sequel out. had to do with beepers. <laughs> I think you're right. So it was a 13 part series. It was a mystery. It was funded by the Hughes Aircraft Corporation and they could not find a writer. And I had been wanting, I'd been pining to write on this film, on this series, but they were only going to have two writers. And the head writer was Jan Moore, who had written the Degrassi High series, Degrassi Junior High, Degrassi sure. High, yeah. that stuff. And they were going to look for someone else, obviously more experienced than I, and they could not find anybody. And I'm only dimly aware of this. I'm doing other stuff. And one day my boss came into me and literally said, okay, we're desperate. Like shooting is starting in two weeks and we do not have a script, uh, you know, the first script and take, here's, here's the outline, take your computer, go home, write something and we'll see how it goes. And so I did. And, um, I wrote a script 
I wasn't even that familiar with how to write a script, but I did and they loved it. And so then I was the script writer for the series. And so that's how it happened. Sure. <laughs> Literally go home. You have five days. Yeah. <laughs> See what you can do. There you go. And a career, a career is launched. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's one thing to write for a, um, you know, a children's audience, but then it would seem to me it's a whole other thing to write when your protagonists are in the same age group as your target audience, um, as an adult, what do you have to do to make that protagonist um, feel like a kid watching is going to see a kid going, you know, experiencing certain things. So in other words, you know, how do you get into that space where as a seven year old, an eight year old, what would be their motivation? What would, how would they interpret that instead of that notion of, well, let's write kind of an adult script uh, on our first pass and then our second pass, let's just kidify it. Yeah. You know, I think the secret and the best writers I've seen, and I don't, it, it's it, just an ability to remember yourself as, at that age and feel it, like be in it, like not having to look down on it from afar <laughs> as some kind of strange species that you're trying to translate for you, you feel it. And I just can, I always have been able to feel. So it's almost a channeling. Yeah, exactly. Feel what it's like to be seven. Now that said, um, yeah, it's a little more for seven, eight, nine, you tend to write up a little language mm -hmm. is more sophisticated. I mean, DW and Arthur is an example. She's supposedly four, right. no four-year-old talks like DW. Right. But her concerns are still a four-year-old's concerns. She's yeah, but, the, but that's an excellent point. And I think it's it's one of the things that distinguishes um, the, you know, quote unquote, children's programming that um, really not just stands the test of time, but becomes accessible even to a wider audience, you know, in the sense that um, I've always thought that expose your kids to media that's going to raise the bar a bit. Right. As far as articulation and humor and thought. Um, whereas if you go the other way, you you can only what are you doing? You're not advancing the conversation at all. This is so key. And this is a, this is something that happens all the time. And it's and the, 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 the feelings about it shift. Um, and I remember from Between the Lions, um, there was an advisor, I think her name was Marilyn Adams, and she had done a lot of work on vocabulary acquisition. And I was very struck by her findings, which were that um, um, kids who came from families who, you know, had had issues um, and just were not getting read to at night. We're not getting, you know, the families were working too hard, whatever. Um, and they were not getting vocabulary and, and their families were not eating around the dining room table. I remember this was a big setting where kids learn vocabulary when they actually spend time with their parents and converse with them. Kids who don't have those experiences, their language acquisition is um, their vocabulary is so, so below the vocabulary of a, of a kid who does get read to and does have lots of uh, conversations with adults. So my feeling always is, you know, television, movies should should use interesting language. I don't think kids are ever put off by something they don't know because they they don't know anything. 
You know, they kind of enter the, everything is a mystery to them. Words, meanings, double entendres. It's like they're, they're so primed to absorb and think and, and make sense of the world. And so I don't think they're disturbed at all when there's a word they don't know. However, there are some people who feel very much the, the opposite and that you shouldn't be using language that is not uh, something very, very familiar to a seven-year-old. And I'm not arguing for confusing kids, but I am arguing for challenging them Sure, not, and not talking or down to them in any way. So that's a perennial issue. And um, the pendulum swings back and forth on that. Yeah. And along those lines. So in, you know, in, in 2022, if, if as a, as a writer, you're, you're writing dialogue, that's going to be spoken by your, your preteen character. Um, that preteen character, if, if it's a, a, um, a film, say, that's set in a contemporary time, will have been exposed to kind of media inputs and stimuli that a character that you were writing, say, in 2012 or in 2002 would not have been. How do what's what's your check uh, against sort of the the relevancy of the vernacular and the uh, the semantic stew that uh, kids of a particular era versus another era are involved in? It's really tricky. It's such a good question. I mean, the concerns of kids, even though the language around it changes so much, but the concerns tend to be, um, you know, universal and timeless. So there's that. You can kind of start with that. And this is a... a, a question that I think every show takes a different approach to. I'm working on a series now for, um, I'm writing and a consulting producer on a series called Work It At Wombats and for PBS. And the decision was um, made to, uh, it's, a, it's a bunch of characters um, who live in a tree called a treeberhood. <laughs> so um, the decision was made to give them and let them use kinds of, you know, more modern technologies, except they are unique to the treeberhood. They are inter sort of old fashioned intercom systems uh, meshed with tablets, meshed with all kinds of things so that in a way you can't date it. Um, I, I hope you're fitting a fax machine into that. <laughs> I think the fax machine is a bit tired. I that think could so. be it. I think so. But um, so they went they went full like, let's not um, pretend that kids don't have access to this stuff. And they walk around and they can see videos on, you know, handheld devices. And so let's use it. But we're going to make it very particular to this odd and quirky and wonderful neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, Ivy and Bean, however, I did write a scene where um, the older sister is filming Ivy trying to cast a spell with a camera and they took it out because they just, I mean, a phone camera because they, they decided no technology. We're just, we're not going to pretend it doesn't exist, but we're just not going to look at it. Yeah. And interesting. Yeah. And I, you know, it's funny. I, I spoke some time ago uh, with a novelist who writes a lot of historical fiction, and she was saying that, um, you know, she has a lot of friends who are who set their novels in present day. And she always thinks of that, oh, my God, that's just that would be so difficult because I would have to have my characters you know, to make them believable, engage with a lot of technology that yes. she didn't have any interest in being, you know, engaged with. And then I often think about things like um, 
uh, you know, like crime shows that it's so tough to write a good crime show these days because you ca- you can't do anything without leaving some type of a fingerprint, whether it's a digital fingerprint or, yes. you know, you've been surveilled in some way. So the um, uh, certain technologies not existing in your fictional world, I think, is advantageous. Yeah, no, because you are going to be so dated. I mean, I wonder there, there was a period, I think, between, you know, between the 40s to the 70s where things didn't change you know, a whole lot. Yep. I mean, you might have a TV set and it might be black and white and then it might be color, but it was now, my Lord, you know, you're you're out of date in three years. You're completely sure. out of date. So you oh, have yeah. to I mean, I, I look back. The, the thing is, it's actually. Okay, if you if the show is what like Arthur has all kinds of outdated technologies in it, but nobody minds because right. it's Arthur and it's so well written and it's so fun. It doesn't matter. But that's the litmus test. Does, yeah. does do the per- it's like, you know, people still watch Seinfeld and he's he's talking on a portable phone the size of his sneaker. Right. And, you know, it doesn't take away from the brilliance of the comedy. No, exactly. And I mean, think of Roald Dahl. It's it's <laughs> never going to you know, I mean, this stuff is timeless because he taps into universal themes and you know and he uh he remembers so well it's so clear he had a somewhat traumatic childhood himself and he remembers so clearly what it was like being abused by adults and mistreated by adults and it just it's right there and he he is kind of a voice for mistreated children everywhere that never is going to go out of style yeah, unfortunately, right. That yeah, recovery process yeah. and the the uh, uncovering of that. Yeah. So when I talk to writers, I'm always really interested in their process. Um, and it would it, I, I'm going to guess that, you know, uh, writing episodically or even writing for in the case of the Ivy and Bean films, uh, I'm sure there was a, you know, pretty tight schedule that you had to adhere to. Yeah. So um, what is your process? Are you do you prefer? Do, does it matter to you the time of day that you're writing in? Does it matter to you the type of room that you're writing in? Oh, yeah. I love this question. Is the music on? Is the music off? Oh, my. Lo- no, the music is off. And I'm always saying to my daughter who can't work without the music on, like, what, how can she can't work without the music on? My, yes, I have I, traced my own cognitive decline. There's three steps. There was, <laughs> didn't matter the music. It could be thrash metal or whatever. <laughs> and then it had to be instrumental. I couldn't, I couldn't write couldn't where, where so, so instrumental is fine. Now it's gotta be silence. And if it's too windy out, I gotta leave. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's a neighbor here with a wind chime and I'm, yeah. I'm about to march over. And <laughs> How dare you? I'm an artist. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure as you've heard from every writer, there's so much procrastination and deadlines are so useful because if it weren't for deadlines, nothing would get done. Nothing. So um, there's a lot of procrastination, but what's interesting of course, is in the procrastination stuff is happening sure. you know, in your right brain or wherever it is that you're not even aware of. Um, so my process, I get up in the morning. My new thing now is I take a walk in the morning and then I, I, I lose myself in crossword puzzles. I have to, I've realized I have to get, um, I have to be using words, but not, not around writing. And always there's a click. I'm in the middle of a crossword puzzle and suddenly I'm ready. And so I just like, you know, go right to my dock and start writing. So I'd say late morning, early afternoon, is my best writing time sometimes it used to be at night. This mm-hmm. is what me. I used to I used to work better at night and no longer, no hmm. longer. So um 
tons of procrastination. What was I going to say? Uh, I, I have learned uh, the, the best thing is when it, and, and, and it happens often enough, uh, it'll scare me when it doesn't happen anymore is, um, once you've started the world, the characters are real to you. This is if you're lucky enough to work on a project you love and with characters you love, sometimes it's more pulling teeth because you don't have that connection to the characters. But when you really know these characters and believe in them, it really helps to have, um, I'm segueing here, but um, when you're writing to hear the voices, to know the voices of the characters. So it's always easier to write in a second season or midway through a first season because they've cast the voices and yeah. now you hear them. And so now, um, you know, you, you know how to write for DW, you, you know what she sounds like, you know how she phrases things and how it, so it becomes um, channeling and you yeah. just start writing and, and I just keep at it phones off everything off until the the channel is cut off and then i stop and take a walk i always remember reading something that hemingway said this sounds very you know um pompous but i I, it really struck me as right he said i i always stop when i know what the next sentence is going to be so he doesn't Hmm. write there he stops right before he knows what he's doing next and he shuts down for the day and then that way the next morning there's he's ready to go because he knows it's already it's already well i I was going to say the uh the 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 bullet was already in the weapon but that's probably not uh, (laughs) apropos for hemingway that might be a little too on the nose oh god (laughs) right (laughs) but yeah the pump is primed and all you have to do is like open what do you yeah. do yeah you do something anyway and, the, and it comes out so i uh i found that to be really good advice it's hard to end a day feeling stuck sometimes it's you know sometimes you have to and then hopefully you go for a walk take a shower do something that loosens the um but then it's hard the next day if you're stuck and then what i do this is something else that works for me is when i start the next day i go back over what i wrote the day before and i edit it and it sort of sets me up to keep going mm-hmm. gotcha so, um, so in the instance of uh animated um uh, the animated programs that you were the uh, either the lead writer or part of the writing team on um what tell me about that experience where you know you've labored for months helping create these characters, helping to put words in their mouths. And then you hear the voice actors who have been cast. Uh, Have there been instances where you're like, whoa, that voice doesn't sound anything like the one that was in my head or the other way around where you're kind of amazed by how how on the nose it was? You know, that's so interesting you say that because um, I'm freelancing. Um, I should mention I have a, a, an interesting relationship with GBH where I work part time okay. there so I can freelance elsewhere because um, I just wanted the opportunities that that would sure. provide. Um, so I am just freelancing on another show and we just heard some of the voices yesterday and it, I, it wasn't at all what I had imagined. <laughs> they sounded so much older. So so, yeah, there there is absolutely that moment when um it either goes one way like either it completely or ideally is better than what you imagined sure, yeah and now you're off and running or it's so different that it kind of sticks you um it kind of grinds you you know and then you don't have to just i always remember so i was head writer and peep in the big wide world which was one of my favorite series at gbh it was so 
wonderful and simple. And I had so much creative freedom there, mm-hmm. which is not always the case. Um, they, uh, it just happened that, um, it just happened to be that way. So, um, we cast, you know, we, uh, it was based on a, on a film that had been made by a brilliant animator, Kai Pindal. Uh, he had done a little animated film and he had, he had wanted to do the simplest thing possible. And so he had animated this on some like adding paper, you know, just, just running by. And it was just three little shapes, peep, quack, and chirp living in, in some unknown place and having little adventures. And it was narrated um, by whom I'm forgetting, not Burl Ives, but somebody with that, that that kind of voice it was narrated. So we had to imagine who, what they were going to sound like when they actually spoke for themselves. Peep and chirp. We got very quickly peep an innocent voice. And so we found some six-year-old boy or something and chirp had to be a little bit, um, more opinionated and tougher. And so we got a girl had a bit of gravel in her voice. That was easy. And then we couldn't find quack quack had to be pompous and hilarious. And, um, and he was a little bit older, but he couldn't, I remember listening and listening. We, 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 and, and kudos to, to GBH. Cause we went back and back and back and back. Um, we were working with nine story on this and we just kept saying, uh, nope, we don't have them yet. We must have listened to 70 voices or something. It was forever because what we discovered was it was odd if the voice was too old. Like, what's this old guy doing with two kids? This doesn't work. <laughs> but it, the the role was comedic enough. It had to be voiced by an adult. Okay. And then and then we just found the perfect person on like the end, you know, the last minute and so funny, so good at ad libbing, so pompous and, and yet had a kind of youthful oddness to it. It didn't sound at all strange with these two little kids. And from that moment, I, I, I was so happy because we just, um, anything I wrote, he would take and make it better. Just, he would just ad lib off it. And, um, that's the ideal synergy you want. Sure. And the actor wow. just, just takes what you do and runs with it. That's great. So how do you balance your, you, you, you mentioned that you're, you know, you're still part of the, the, uh, the GBH team, at least on a part-time basis. And then, and then you, you, you freelance, um, how do you balance, um, uh, the uh, the commitment to each of them. I'm, I'm thinking more just in terms of time, but also in terms of, you know, headspace, because it's not it, it's different than being like if you were writing ad copy and, you know, in the morning, yeah. it's the toothpaste and in the afternoon, it's the tires. Right. That you're going to write about. I mean, you're in different worlds. Yes. Yes. Um, my my schedule with GBH can be a little flexible, three days to four days or mm-hmm. a little bit more than four days. So um, I generally just so far it's worked out fine. It's, it's like, I know that I can't head writing is, is such a time commitment. You, you can't head write more than one show at a time for sure. So, so far it's worked out that when one job is, um, but that's what seven days a week are for. Yeah. I got to go to college. <laughs> that's, that's what it comes down to. Who needs a weekend? Um, <laughs> uh, and I have sometimes had just even working on multiple projects at GBH, writing on multiple projects at GBH, which I've done from time to time. It's like, if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium syndrome. Like, wait, yeah. <laughs> yeah. what show is this now? It's, it sounds, um, yeah. So it's tr- tricky. And so what I try to do is not do 
two shows on a day. If I have two scripts due in the same week for two different series, I do one one day, the other the next day that, you know, cause I can't go back and forth. Yeah, I have to be really in one. Well, this has been great. Well, I've been speaking with Kathy Waugh, a uh, highly accomplished writer of uh, children's um, movies and television shows for WGBH slash PBS or GBH. Now I got to drop the W. Yeah. Um, right. Old habits die hard. And and her uh, last creative achievement is being the writer of the Ivy and Bean three part series that's now live on Netflix. Uh, so check those out. And um, yeah, can't wait to hear what what you what you've got uh, coming up next. And I really appreciate the time talking to you. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, it's so nice to talk to you, Mike. It really is. <laughs> All right. And uh, we'll talk in a less formal setting soon, I'm sure. Thanksgiving, yeah, yeah. at least. Yes. Thanksgiving. <laughs> okay. Okay.